Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began uh, to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put, on, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is again, alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I had never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin today with a simple question. And that is, have you come to the place in your life where you know for certain if you were to die this very day, that you would spend eternity with God. Your sins are forgiven, and you are his child. And if you have that assurance, then why do you have it? If you stood before God in judgment, and he said, Why should I let you into my heaven? What would your response be? Go ahead and form that response in your mind. It's possible that for some people in the room, the response goes something like this, one that I've heard many, many times. Well, I believe that I should enter into heaven because I'm a good moral person. I keep the Ten Commandments. I try to fulfill the golden rule. I'm a good mother, a father, a son, a daughter. But when a person answers the question in that way, who are they really trusting for salvation? The subject of every one of those sentences was, 
I, 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 I. And so when a person responds that way, they are really trusting not the Lord Jesus Christ, but themselves. That response is completely inadequate. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, salvation is by grace. And if it is by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Salvation is either by grace, God's undeserved love, his unmerited favor, his mercy, or it is by works, our efforts to be good and to keep his law but most of us try to navigate our way between those two extremes, depending a little bit on God's grace and a little bit on ourselves and our personal goodness for salvation. The Lord Jesus corrects that false theology very bluntly in the parable of the prodigal son, which we might call a parable of grace. The Lord Jesus tells this parable in response to an accusation of the scribes and Pharisees back In verse 2, the scribes and Pharisees grumbled against Jesus as he ate with tax collectors and sinners and say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees didn't like the fact that Jesus accepted sinners like tax collectors and prostitutes just as they were. In their theology, you were saved on the basis of your own personal goodness. One of the famous Pharisees, Rabbi Akiva, liked to describe God as a great heavenly accountant who had an enormous ledger. And every time a person sinned, that sin would be recorded on the debit side of the ledger. And every time a person did a good deed, it would be recorded on the credit side of the ledger. And the rabbi said on the day of judgment, the books would be balanced. If we had more debits than credits, that is, more bad deeds than good, we would go to hell. But if we had more credits than debits, that is, more good deeds than bad, we would go to heaven. And because they held this philosophy of salvation based on personal goodness, they were unwilling to accept repentant tax collectors, repentant prostitutes and drunkards like Jesus did. Oh, sure, they thought they may have repented, but they have not yet accumulated enough goodness to make them acceptable to God, and so they can't possibly be acceptable to me. And by implication, they shouldn't be acceptable to Jesus. But in response to this charge, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus tells three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. And the point of each parable is essentially the same. Jesus says, I not only accept sinners just as they are, I go out and diligently search for them. And when I find them, I celebrate their repentance and salvation. And so should you. In this parable, Jesus paints four pictures for us. First of all, a picture of sin. Then a picture of self-dependence then a picture of salvation, and finally a picture of self-righteousness. He begins with this picture of sin. 
He says, there was a man who had two sons, and one day his younger son came to him and asked for his portion of the inheritance. Now, under Jewish law, you didn't receive your inheritance until your father died. So what the boy was essentially saying is, Dad, I can't wait for you to die to get what you've got. I want it now. He made it very, very clear that he did not care for his father at all, but only for his father's rich possessions. And amazingly, rather than responding in anger, the father gave the boy his portion of the inheritance. But he immediately packed up everything that he had and traveled to a distant land, and there he squandered all the resources his father had entrusted to him with what the Scripture calls reckless living. Uh, The word translated here as reckless, asotos, is the same word that's used in Ephesians 5.18 to speak of drunkenness and partying. It's used in 1 Peter 4.4 in association with sensuality, lustful passions, drunkenness, sexual orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatries. A little bit later in the parable, the elder brother will accuse the younger brother of devouring his father's property with prostitutes. And he probably got it right. And now after he had wasted all of his father's resources, living the life of a playboy, he had spent everything. He was penniless. And all those friends that flocked around him when he had money in his pockets now abandoned him. In his hunger, he was ultimately forced to hire himself out as a slave to a pagan farmer who sent him into a pig pen to spend his entire day slopping the hogs. And through this portion of the parable, Jesus is teaching a very simple but vivid truth about sin and sinners. His point is sin is dirty. Sin is defiling. Sin is despicable. You see, it's no accident that the prodigal son lands in the pig pen because in the mind of a first century Jew, there was no animal in all the world that was as filthy and unclean as a pig. Leviticus 11.7 said, The swine is unclean to you. Of their flesh you shall not eat, their carcass you shall not touch. They are utterly unclean to you. In fact, the Jews were so struck by the notion of the pig's uncleanness that between the time of the Old and New Testament, when the evil king Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Judea and the city of Jerusalem and went into the temple and slaughtered a pig and sprinkled its blood all over the holy place, The Jews were so outraged by this desecration that they declared war against the king, even though his troops greatly outnumbered their own, and they recognized that they would probably all be slaughtered. Only a few years later, when the same evil king forced the Jews to make a choice, either be tortured until dead or eat pork, the flesh of a pig, many of them chose unthinkable tortures rather than to eat that defiled food. 
Some of them were burned alive. Some of them were skinned alive. Some of them were dismembered by the Syrian catapults. But they chose to endure these horrible tortures rather than to eat the despicable, defiled, filthy flesh of the pig. The pig was the epitome of defilement and uncleanness to the first century Jewish mind. And so when Jesus places this boy in the pig pen, he is saying he is dirty as a person can be. He is despicable as we could possibly imagine. He is a miserable excuse for a person. His stench is repulsive. He's someone who would be completely rejected by any self-respecting Jew. And yet Christ will show that the Father still loved him. The Father still sought him. And the Father still welcomed him into his arms. When I was four years old, <clears throat> my parents moved out to a bit of acreage in Yachty, Mississippi. It had formerly been a hog farm. And out on the corners of our property, there were still old hog pens filled with the muck and mire of the hogs. One of my favorite things to do as a boy was to roam that acreage My second favorite thing to do was to aggravate my older sister, Kathy. And one day, as a little four-year-old boy, I coaxed my older sister, who was about six at the time, into our little red wagon. I was going to be her horse, pulling her in her chariot. And you can guess what I did. I tugged that little red wagon right out into the middle of one of those old hogwallers. And the little narrow wheels of that red wagon began to sink in the mire of the hogwaller. And that ooze came creeping up over the sides of the wagon and started touching my sister's legs. And she began to scream at the top of her lungs so loudly that I was afraid Mama might be able to hear. And so I was determined to get her out of there and get her out fast. And while she screamed, I leaned forward and tugged on the handle of that little red wagon, and it didn't budge. Harder, Chuck, harder, she screamed. So I leaned forward, and with everything I had, I heaved. And the slick soles of my little cowboy boots slid on the bottom of that hogwaller, and before I knew it, bloop, face first into the hogwaller. I didn't even like to get water up my nose, much less that stuff. I came out of that like the creature from the Black Lagoon. I was raking that stuff out of my eyes, my ears, snorting it out of my nose, spitting it out of my mouth. It was the most horrible experience I had ever undergone at that age. And as you can imagine, there was only one thing that could comfort me at a time like that, and that was the loving arms of my mama. So I went running across the pasture, arms open wide, screaming, Mama, Mama. My mama came out the sliding glass of the trailer to see what was going on. She took one look at me, slammed the sliding glass door, and shouted from behind it, Chuck Quarles, you will not come in this house until your daddy washes you down with the water hose. And I sat on the back porch of that trailer Tears streaming down my face, my little heart broken because I knew that in all the world there was no one who loved me like my mama. And yet even she 
couldn't accept me fresh from the pig pen. She loved me with the strongest of all natural loves, but it takes more than that to accept body straight from the pig pen. Not the strongest of natural loves, but the strongest of supernatural loves. Not the love of a mother, but the love of the father. Not a father, the father. And that's the love that many of us have not begun to comprehend. Now, don't get me wrong. God abhors the stench of our filth and sinfulness. In his holiness, it is repulsive to him. It is repugnant to him. It turns his holy stomach. And yet he throws wide his arms and welcomes us into his embrace because he loves the sinner more than he hates our sin. Because he loves us despite who we are and what we have done and is willing and ready to forgive. Scene one is a picture of sin. Scene two is a picture of self-righteousness. While that boy languishes in the pig pen, he suddenly recognizes that he doesn't have to suffer in this way. He recalls the fact that even the hired servants back in his father's home have plenty of bread. They have clothes on their back. They have a roof over their heads. And he begins to imagine going back to the father and seeking restoration. And as he dreams of that, he begins to rehearse in the pig pen the speech that he's going to make when he returns to his father. It goes like this. Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, you probably heard before that this is the moment at which this young man truly repents of his sins, receives the grace of the Father, and is saved. But I adamantly disagree. It is true that at this point in the parable, the young man recognizes his sinfulness. I have sinned against heaven and before you. It's true that he has some notion of his unworthiness. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But notice that he is not yet ready to cast his soul at the feet of the Father in full dependence on his grace and mercy. No, he wants to go back to the Father and negotiate. He wants to strike a bargain with him. He says, make me as one of your hired servants. The word hired servant is mistheos in Greek. It literally means as a wage earner. He thinks that the father's love and a place in the father's house is a wage that can be earned. He thinks that if he can just plow enough fields and plant enough crops and shovel the manure out of enough stables that she can somehow earn a place in the Father's home again. What is this a picture of? It's the false gospel of the Pharisees 
A false gospel that says, if I can just work hard enough at being good, if I can just work diligently enough at keeping God's commandments, I will strike a bargain with him and be welcomed into his home. And hear me well, no one ever receives heaven as a wage. The Apostle Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is correcting the false theology of the Jews by contrasting a wage with a gift. A wage is something you work for, you earn, you deserve. But a gift is something somebody gives to you simply because they deeply love you. And Paul says no one enters heaven as a wage. If we got the wage that we have earned and deserved through the sinful lives that we've lived, all of us would suffer God's punishment for all of eternity. But praise God, in his great love, he offers us forgiveness of sin and blessings for all eternity as a free gift that we could never earn or deserve, but which he grants us simply because he loves us with a love that should leave every one of us baffled scene one is a picture of sin it's dirty despicable scene two is a picture of self-dependence a picture of a person who thinks if they work hard enough and can be good enough they will earn god's favor but scene three is a picture of genuine salvation when the son nears home He finds that his father has stood at the gate of the estate day after day after day, scanning the horizon and looking for his boy to come home. And as soon as he sees that distant silhouette, he lifts up his robe and he runs frantically to his son, throws his arms around him, and covers that boy's filthy face with kisses. He's received just as he is. When the father puts his arm around him and guides him back onto the property, he begins to bark orders to his servants. He says, bring the best robe and put it on him. A beautiful, lavish, clean robe that will cover the filthy, tattered rags he had worn as a swine keeper. He says, put a ring on his finger. This is a reference to the signet ring. This is the restoration of all the rights and privileges of sonship to this boy. He can be his father's legal representative again. He says, put sandals on his feet. Sandals weren't worn by slaves in Judea at this time. They were worn only by freed men. And the robe, the ring, the sandals all combined to signify the fact that this boy is not accepted as a slave or a hired servant, but he has been restored all the rights and privileges of sonship. You'll notice that the boy didn't have to make up for the money that he had lost. He didn't have to work for his room and board. He didn't have to earn the father's favor by plowing fields, planting crops, and shoveling out stables. All he had to do 
was cast himself in dependence on the Father's grace and mercy, and he would find that that was more than enough. Notice in verse 21 that when the boy begins to deliver the little speech that he rehearsed in the pig pen, he offers it exactly as he delivered it, but with one important omission. He confesses his sin just as he had rehearsed. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He confesses his unworthiness just as he had rehearsed. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But he leaves off that bargain. Make me one of your hired servants. Why? Because he has felt the Father's entire body shake when he threw his arms around him, overcome with relief and gratitude for the boy's homecoming. He has felt the Father's hot tears that stream down his face. And he knows that he is welcomed home just as he is, despite what he has done and not because of anything that he could ever do in the Father's service. He leaves off those words, make me as one of your hired servants, because he recognizes at last that heaven is not a wage. It is a free gift that the Father grants to us in his love, and that to receive it we must simply trust God's great grace. Scene 4 is a picture of self-righteousness. Although the Father who represents our Heavenly Father God freely accepted this repentant son, the elder brother refused to do the same. In fact, he refused to even identify this repentant sinner as his brother. Notice in verse 30 that he refers to him not as my brother as he speaks to the father, but he calls them with spite, this son of yours. The point is, you might choose to accept him, daddy, but I will not. Why is the son's response so harsh? Well, I would suggest that it's because he is very aware of his brother's sin, but refuses to acknowledge his own. He says in verse 30 that his brother had squandered his father's hard-earned money on prostitutes, and that may well be true. But look at what he says about himself in verse 29. He says, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. I have perfectly fulfilled your instructions in every single way, Daddy. Now, how many of you who have raised teenagers actually believe that? (laughs) Yes. Obviously, there were times when he disobeyed the Father's command. But he is blind to his own faults even when he's keenly aware of the faults of others. 
The elder brother represents here the hypocrisy that the Lord Jesus condemned in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 when he spoke of those who see so clearly the speck in the eye of their brother but fail to see the huge beam that is sticking out of their own. Keenly aware of others' faults but blind to their own sins. And if we're honest, we will have to admit that we all wrestle with this from time to time. We see how others have sinned and failed, but we put ourselves up on a pedestal as if we were some super saints. We condemn others for their past sins and completely overlook our present ones. Now, don't get me wrong. If we have a brother or sister who continues persistently in a sinful lifestyle, we should go to them and we should lovingly confront them and call them to repentance. But that's not what is happening here. He's condemning this man for his past sins. But this man no longer is what he was before. As the father exclaims, he was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. This young man no longer is what he was before, but this elder brother still wants to accuse him and condemn him for his sinful past, a past that is forgiven and forgotten as far as the Father is concerned. The New Testament refers to the devil as the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who whispers words of condemnation in our ear. You think you can serve Christ through his church? Well, don't you remember who you are? Don't you remember what you once did? But it is a sad state of affairs when those who are supposed to be our brothers and sisters in Christ become mouthpieces for the accuser of the brethren, and they begin to heap the same condemnation on those that they are called to love. And we're not supposed to be channels for the accusations of the accuser. We are supposed to be channels of the forgiveness of the Father. And we, like the Father, are to forgive and to forget. We are to recognize that the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ, like our own, are as far from them as the east is from the west. And we are to recall their sinful past no more. If truth be told in this room today, there are plenty of prodigals and Pharisees. On the one hand, there are those who have a sinful past that makes them feel dirty and defiled and that would make them think the Father could never accept them just as they are. To them, Christ says very, very plainly, the Father's arms are open wide. If you repent and you believe and you trust the Father's grace and mercy through Christ, you can be forgiven and restored. But on the other hand, my guess is there are some Pharisees 
in this room. Those who think that they're good enough that they don't need much of God's grace. If they just keep a few more commandments, fulfill a few more rules and regulations, that they can pass the Father's muster and somehow receive heaven edgeways. The Lord Jesus calls both of us to repentance. The Lord Jesus calls both of us to trust his mercy and his mercy alone for our salvation. My senior year out of high school, I worked as a lifeguard at a Baptist boys camp in Kosciuszko, Mississippi. To be honest with you, I wasn't that strong of a swimmer. I nearly drowned myself a couple of times just trying to get through the lifeguard training. One day I was sitting up on the lifeguard stand and the lifeguard trainer came to me and he said, Chuck, I want you to look out into the lake and I want you to pretend that you see a boy out there who's flipped his canoe. He's not wearing his life jacket and his head is bobbing up and down above the surface of the water and he's calling out to you for help. What do you do? I said, well, just what I was trained, I dive into the water, I swim to him as fast as I can, I throw my arm around him, and I tow him to the shore. He said, no, Chuck, that's the last thing you do. I said, what? He said, if you swim out to the middle of this lake, by the time you get there, you're going to be completely exhausted. And in that boy's frantic struggle to save himself, he's going to throw his arms around your neck, as soon as you get within arm's reach, and not us, only is he going to die, he's probably going to take you down to the depths with him. He said, no, you go ahead and swim to him as fast as you can, but stay just out of arm's reach and circle him and circle him and watch him while he fights, while he struggles to save himself and wait until he reaches that point where he is so exhausted of the struggle, he throws up his arms in surrender and trusts you alone to save him. Then grab him and tow him to the shore. In the same way, God the Father says to God the Son, I want you to save my lost and dying world, but they cannot be saved while they're struggling to save themselves through all of their good works and their religious activities. No, you wait until they so tire of that struggle to save themselves that they trust you alone to save them. You see, the Pharisees had it all backwards. They thought in order for a person to be saved that they had to be transformed from prodigal to Pharisee, from a sinful person to a very, very good person who somehow earned and deserved the favor of God. But Christ says, oh, no. In fact, if you want to be saved, you've got to be transformed from Pharisee to prodigal. You've got to be transformed from somebody who's impressed with their own goodness enough to think that they can earn salvation to someone who recognizes how filthy and despicable they are and recognizes that their only hope is to rely wholly and completely on the Father's grace and mercy.